politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Mike Pence attacks populism. Democrats fight an eternal war on immigration. And should Republicans abandon the term pro-life? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the dominator, Dominic Pino, Madeline Matty Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is ExpressVPN. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So speaking of not liking what you hear, I assume... MBD. We had this big Mike Pence speech in New Hampshire going after populism, hammer and tongs, saying the party has a fundamental choice between conservatism and populism. And at the end of the speech, I heard it heavily implied, he didn't actually say it, but I, I could hear it. it was heavy in the air. Take that, MBD. <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, um, I like Mike Pence, like as a human being. Um, I think he has a great many virtues, um, and I think he deserves an honor place in his history for the for the way he stood up on January sixth and did his duty. Um, so this this doesn't give me any pleasure uh, whatsoever to disagree with him on on these matters. Uh, I don't think Mike Pence. Th- thinks very deeply about populism, um, what it is, or or sometimes even thinks he doesn't think that deeply about conservatism, <laughs> um, given the way he contrasted the two in this speech. Um, and and readers, and listeners who didn't hear the speech, you can uh, go to the Wall Street Journal this week and search for Mike Pence, and there's an editorial, which is basically most of the speech uh, distilled down. Um, but you know, he basically defines populism as something that's long been a left-wing phenomenon, and there's some truth to that. Um, uh, but for him, populism is you know surrendering limited government and uh, American leadership in the geopolitical sphere, uh, eroding our constitutional norms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and casting in like time honored principles for for passing public opinion. Uh, I just don't think this under populism is not a, a full spectrum political doctrine, right? It is much more a a rhetorical style, um, and it's a rhetorical style that pits you know the virtuous producers against the unvirtuous elites or against the you know a parasitic underclass. Uh, in some of its nastier forms. Um, and ideas that are populist are just ideas that are out of fashion, right? Like, so, like, what's so funny is he 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 talks about, like, it's been associated with with Democrats and leftists, such as Williams, Jennings, Jennings, Bryan, Huey Long, and Bernie Sanders. Okay, those are all populist figures. But, like, William Jennings, Bryan's, the... the the populist movement that grew up to eventually support William Jennings Bryan was a free, mostly a free trading movement promoting economists like Henry George, who now is like considered like a, a, a canonical free trading 
establishmentarian type of economist. I think somewhere in Manhattan, not too far from our old office, there's like the, the headquarters of the, the Henry George Society. Right. Still going. So th- that was considered uh, uh, Henry George's ideas, which are now what most conservatives say are our principles, were in fact like Democrat Party principles in the 19th century. They were upstart. They were seen as outre. They were set against what was then the ascendant American school of economics that derived from Hamilton and went on through Carey and was championed by Abraham Lincoln, Henry Clay, et cetera, those figures. So like populism is, is really about like ideas and their relationship to elites um, and the people's relationship to elites. And conservatism has always, I would argue, has always had some populist element into it as long as there's been mass democracy like as soon as as you know the masses could vote and you know the tory party under disraeli found it could champion uh patriotism it found that there was a a little bit of a populist edge to conservatism because it was liberal elites who felt that they had the education the breeding the grooming to lead society and to plan society and the conservatives tended to put at least some stock, not in the passing opinions of majorities, but in the enduring wisdom and common sense of the people at large. So there's always been the, you know, that kind of element at the edge of the right. So that I just don't think, I understand he's trying to draw, Pence is trying to draw a contrast um, he, between himself and Trump. This is a useful one. I think it's good to kick off a debate, but I just found it not mm-hmm. not all that satisfying, right? Like, I, it just wasn't all that sensitive. And again, like, some of these ideas he's championing as conservatism are intention, right? Like, the you know, there's times when these, the Republican Party's uh, commitment to strong national defense and global leadership is clearly in tension with constitutional norms and liberties, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've seen that in the war on terror, mm-hmm. how that, yeah, you know, that's, that's a fair point going to our, 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 anyway. So anyway, that's all, all I have to say about that. So I agree with a fair amount of that. So, so Dominic, my, my take is he says pretty far up uh, at the top of the speech, there's this, this fundamental choice between conservatism and populism. And I don't think that's necessarily true. One, populism, as, as MBD points out, uh, at least a large element of, of it is kind of a mode of politics and one that successful Republican polit- politicians have uh, mobilized or used to their ends for a very long time. You can see it in Nixon, you can see it in Reagan, you can see it in George W. Bush, obviously, you can see it and Trump, and to the extent that populism is a, a substantive phenomenon, which is which is also true, um, on, on a lot of issues, it's, it's kind of hard to disentangle, you know, is opposition to the elites who run our educational system, is that conservative or is that populist? Uh, opposition to the, the lockdowns and the rule by experts during COVID, was that conservative or populist? You know, the Wanting to shut down the border or get control of the border, is that conservative or, or populist? So these, these things can be, uh, the lines can be uh, blurred. And then also, I think Trump is, is a little bit of a separate phenomenon. Obviously, he's a, uh, uh, a populist. But uh, if you're a populist, it doesn't necessarily mean you support Trump. They, some of the most extremely online populists now are opposed to Trump because they, they can't bear the personal conduct and think he's uh, electoral, electorally radioactive. And they're with uh, uh, DeSantis. You know, MBD would be uh, an example of this. But all that said, they're, they're uh, clearly populists are more friendly to using government for ends that they think uh, are Im- important. They are more skeptical of intervention overseas. Although if you're a quasi isolationist, if you want to use that term, doesn't necessarily mean you're a populist. The, the restrainers, so-called, are not uh, populist. And then finally, they, they really don't care about the uh, the, the, the debt at, at all, Some, something that, that Pence underlined uh, quite strongly in the speech. But where what were your thoughts about it? I think the speech works better if you cross out every time you said populist and you replace it with Trump and Ramaswamy. And um, if you take every time you said mm-hmm. conservative and replace it with me and everyone else. Um, because I, mm-hmm. I think that that is really what he was doing there. Um, 
it's and 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 I'm you know it's good for him too. He he mentioned Trump by name, uh, which was good because for a while there I was sort of concerned he wasn't going to, um, but he did, and I think that was a good thing. Um, he is all of course he's always in the weird position of having to be critical of Trump while also defending his own record as vice president for Trump, um, which 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 creates some some tensions uh, that that came out in the speech as well, but. One of the things that I think is really interesting and I think is correct that he said in the speech is he said this towards the end. He said, conservatives believe in the American people. Now, that sounds populist, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you, yeah. you want to say, <laughs> right. say that populist means, you know, yeah, being on the side of the people. Um, he's basically saying conservatives believe in, in, in the people. But he followed that up with another point, which is that you know the, the, that 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 there's a there's a flip side to that relationship is that conservatives believe in the american people but also that the american people believe in the constitutional system that that we uh, that we have of elected of elected representative government that operates with checks and balances in order to keep government limited and keep people free and um and and i think that the 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 pairing of those two things together um that's the really important part of 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 conservatism and and where you don't just say look we believe in the american people period that's the end of it we just do whatever the american people mm-hmm. want no matter what it is um i think that the, the 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 pairing that with the constitutional order which as pence argues has served the united states very well i mean this is a powerful wealthy country um that that uh that that has been extremely successful with the constitution and the system of government that we have. And so, um, you know, it comes with this idea too, that he says, we trust the American people to run their own lives. Um, you know, that, that people don't need government to, to tell them what to do. Um, we see this weird contradiction that populists, um, so-called populists, uh, run into, which is, uh, in this, you know, advocacy of a more muscular government presence, whether it's, uh, in, in, especially in economic affairs, is this idea that you know we don't trust the elites in Washington, but also we really kind of want the Department of Commerce to be more active in directing investment, and directing mm-hmm. these things. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I thought you guys didn't trust didn't trust the government. And uh, you know, conservatives, uh, you know, in, in Pence's terminology here, um, conservatives would would agree with that. Like, hey, we shouldn't trust we shouldn't trust uh, the government to to do these things because. They demonstrated they're not very good at it, and also that um, you know we know from various sort of uh, more, more theoretical approaches that uh, that there's uh, you know they can't possibly make the right decisions because they don't have the knowledge necessary to do it right, and so that is sort of a, a populist approach if you want to break it down this way, right? So mm-hmm. I do think there is a lot of that that sort of. Um, thing where these terms get messy because populists ultimately, I, I think I agree with Michael that populist ultimately is a is a rhetorical posture. It doesn't really mean anything in terms of uh, policy. Yeah. yeah so Dominic, just to, to I, oh, go ahead. I, mean. I do want to I do want to say that populism's rhetorical style lends itself towards certain politics, right? Like, so when I say it can, it's protean in that like. If if mercantilism is the dominant um, school of thought in the elite, free trade is going to be populist, and it's going to be like this is the wisdom of the people set against the managers and elites. But at the same time, there's a rhetorical style where populism, like um, because it favors the people, there's a kind of anti-wealth argument. There is a pro-producer element to populism that it lends itself to. And, you know, there is in the extreme cases, like this belief in the virtuous man or the strong man that comes through in, in populist rhetoric, mm-hmm. uh, right. The, the person who has to break through the, the network of the elite, uh, you know, and the, the dens of corruption. It has to be one man, whether that's a preacher like William Jennings, Bryan, or whether it's a, traitor to his class like FDR or Donald Trump. So there, there is like, when I say it's, it's protean, there's still, you know, directions and tendencies that it will, it will tend to go in. 
Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting point, right? Because because mercantilism, if if we go back to the American founding, it is uh, it's the elite, it's the Hamiltonian approach yeah. to economics, Absolutely. right? And and you have you know the this is later, but but you have the Jacksonians inveighing in against it, and and uh, in re- really stark and pungent populist terms. Yeah, absolutely. And the Jeffersonians at, at the um, at at the uh, contemporarily with with Hamilton. What do you make of the speech, Maddie? Yeah. So the challenge Pence faces is obviously the same as every other Republican candidate in that he he's forced to define himself in relation to Trump. But in a way, Pence has a bigger challenge in that regard because he was so close to Trump. He was part yeah. of the initial wave of Trumpism, and really, with the exception of January sixth any attack on Trump is potentially a cell phone for Pence. Mm-hmm. So what he's doing here is he's trying to position himself as saying, he, he's almost trying to rescue Trumpism from Trump and say, you know, it's not, it's not me that's changed, it's, it's Trumpism. Um, I'm not sure it really works, though, because obviously there, there are things we can attribute to the Trump administration that are all about order and the constitution, you know, the, the, the courts and the, the court and the win at the courts um, is a big part of that. But, you know, I mean, I, you, you guys have a very sophisticated definition of populism, but for me, it's just frankly, the emotions of ordinary people. And those can be, those can tend to the left, they can tend to the right, they can mm-hmm. be very, very powerful. And, you know, in his, in his speech, Pence mentioned that populism being, an agenda, well, this type of Trump populism being an agenda stitched together by little else than personal grievances and performative outrage. And I remember in 2016 when he was very positive <laughs> about um, the emotions of the American people and, in fact, scolded Hillary and, and uh, was, a, was a beneficiary of the Democrats massively underestimating that force in, mm-hmm. in politics. Um, so I get why he's trying to do this. I'm just not, I'm not convinced it works. Yeah, so the the formulation Pence uses still is is the Trump Pence administration, right? So it just makes it really awkward to to turn around and, and say the guy who is at you know is top billing in, in that formulation is uh, totally unworthy. And I think this this really gets gets you know it's it's to Dominic's point that you know maybe a good editor of the speech would would be to, to Cross out the word populist and, and put in Trump or Ramaswamy. But at the end of the day, the, the 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 point is that Trump is unworthy of the office, right? He has deep character flaws that uh, make him um, radioactive to, to the middle of the electorate and and make him um, a, a chaotic uh, at best leader uh, and president of the United States. And that's kind of what no one can say. Even Pence, who's who's relatively unleashed here, you know, how how do you how do you make that case as as you point out, Maddie, when when you were you were there with him, you know, and and in terms of the ideology, again, to Pence's speech, a contradiction here is he says you got to choose between conservatism and populism. Well, you didn't you didn't have to make that choice for four years during the Trump presidency. Now, Pence, Pence tried to define it as entirely a conservative administration, but it wasn't. It was a, it was a mix of, of these things. And, and one way to look at it, um, uh, Maddie, would, would be that Pence was kind of the, the conservative pole and Trump was the populist pole. And, and sometimes the, the populist tendency was dominant and sometimes the more traditional conservative pole was dominant. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has the advantage over Trump in terms of his credibility on, say, social issues. Um, and he that's, again, that's a, that's a point of contrast he can appeal to. He can say, you know, I, I was very much the force for good with the pro-life movement when I was in the White House. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm more reliable on that now than Trump. Look, look at the stuff he's saying. Look at the stuff I'm saying. Um, look at the stuff I've done. That, to me, seems a more obvious point. I also I understand and, and, and think it, he's very sincere in his Reaganite foreign policy. That's another point of contrast. But trying to make it ideological when the problem, as you say, is more of a character difference, um, I think is a strategic error. Yeah, and that's another thing. It's very weird to, to throw in that, that the populists are weak on, on life, which, again, it's Trump who, who's, who's obviously now un- uncomfortable uh, prosecuting this, this political Carrying forward this this political debate, rather than that that being a, a broader uh, a populist tendency. But anyway, I, I, I hugely admire uh, Mike Pence, and I basically agree with him on you know ninety percent of 
of issues. So I might sound overly critical here um, because I do think the, these, the speech had the, the anal analytical flaws we've all pointed out. But MBD, exit question to you. Mike Pence will make it to the Iowa caucuses or have to drop out beforehand? Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say he'll have to drop out beforehand, but I came up with a, something to sneak in one last point about populism. Um, if he could, if he could pick up the Greenland issue from the Trump administration and say, let's expand to Greenland, uh, maybe he could last because that, that, uh, that's how America solves the, the populist issue is that, um, when cheap labor begins complaining about its place, we just make land and resources even, <laughs> even cheaper uh, than. What so we're you just paying. read that that book about Polk, right? Yeah, Wasn't yeah. Polk the the, the uh, territorial dispute, uh, to use the DeSantis phrase, in the Northwest was he, he kind of knew that was a little bit of a fake thing with with the British, or or it was going to be resolved, but but he had to bang the drums for political yeah. reasons. Yeah, you have to bang the drums, but I, but I do th but I do think that there's a, a real point that like. In, in a way, we've managed this this demand historically, where where when 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 labor begins complaining that we're we're paying it too cheaply in this country, we've usually had the, this uh, expedient of making cost of living even cheaper and mm -hmm. and, and opportunities even more abundant. And in a way, that's I think the political problem that conservatism has had. Uh, in dealing with populism is like, yeah, can well, we get now? Right. You just can't can, when there's no territory, additional territory on offer. And two, even if, if it were, you just farming is not the, uh, yeah, it's not the not route the to like, uh, to becoming, a, a, a major, uh, you know, a minor industrialist or a profitable lawyer in two generations, the way it yeah. was, uh, back then. So Maddie Pence will still be in the race at the time of the Iowa caucuses. Yes or no? Um, I think he will. I mean, he's obviously not doing great in the polls. He's under 5% in national polls and under 4% in Iowa. But then that's not really unique to him. That's a problem um, others are having as well. So unless he runs out of money, um, so long as he, he sees something of a way forward, I think he'll he'll still be there. Dominic. Well, first of all, 5440 or fight, Rich. British Columbia is ours. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, no, I, I think... Um, I think Pence will probably make it to Iowa. I'm not sure he's going to get any further than that. Um, he's clearly giving speeches in New Hampshire, so he thinks he's going to get there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't think he has a really solid shot at the nomination, which is too bad because I think he would be a good president overall. But, um, uh, you know, the interesting thing about that speech is that it was not a vote for me speech. It was a don't vote for Trump or Ramaswamy speech. He seems mm. to be... He's, yeah, that's interesting. He seems to be perfectly happy. Uh, he seems to be perfectly happy uh, with with basically any other Republican candidate in the race right now. So that's why I don't think he'll make it to the Iowa caucuses. I said when he got in that there's some chance he could get pick uh, pick up in Iowa. You know, he's he's much better than people think in small groups. He obviously has major connections with evangelicals, but I'm now quite skeptical that that is going to happen. I mean, it's unfavorable ratings. It's just, it's shocking and unfair, but they're, they're really high. So I, you know, I think he's, he's going to be stuck in single digits in Iowa. And I think there are other candidates who will be fine with that and just kind of uh, running to the finish line, no matter what, even if they're taking their five, 6% from someone else who's closer to Trump. I don't think that will be Pence's attitude. I think when he, um, when and if he sees it's not happening for him, he will do the right thing because he's a genuinely public-spirited man and get out uh, prior to Iowa. It doesn't give me any pleasure to, to say he won't make it, but I, I don't think he will. With that, let's hear from our sponsor of this episode, ExpressVPN. Does it make sense that the same company who controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and these tech juggernauts, and that's why you need Express. 
VPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and to sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, Tech Radar, and countless others. What you'll like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and boom, you're protected. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN you can trust to keep you safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash editors. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash editors to get three extra months free go to expressvpn.com slash editors right now to learn more please check it out so maddie we have a civil war going on in the democratic party over migrants this is a, a terrible catastrophe on all levels but if you put that aside there's something hilarious we have the same people who have been determined self-righteously for years now to declare their jurisdiction sanctuary cities as soon as migrants show up and in the scheme of things not that many migrants these are are huge cities i guess new york city has had something like a hundred thousand come not necessarily all of them stay but it's a city of eight million people totally overwhelmed angry, lashing out at uh, border state governors who've been busing some of these migrants, not all, that's not the main main source of them, and then in, in their desperation actually getting uh, irked as well with the Biden administration and saying they just can't handle it and trying to send them elsewhere. The drama has been unspooling in New York especially, where Eric Adams has, has been saying a lot of things that make him sound like an immigration hawk, and he's been desperate to move on the these migrants to elsewhere in, in uh, New York State, and Kathy Hochul's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so what, what are we supposed to make of this game of hot potato, and where do you think it goes? So this is very similar to the defund the police uh, rhetoric that resulted in this sort of crime wave, and, and then the Democrats were very worried about that with the midterms, rightly so, because it's an issue that breaks through part, traditional party lines and people care about because they can see it. This is a highly visible problem and it's very similar with the, the migrant situation. Um, it's interesting, Eric Adams was using rhetoric that I think if he'd been a Republican saying this, it would have had a lot of coverage calling him hysterical and um, you know whipping up hate and, and putting migrants' lives in danger and all the, the usual sorts of accusations that fly around when Republicans speak in these types of terms. But actually what you were seeing was you were seeing someone who's very, very desperate um, and you know, he was saying things that this will destroy New York City. Um, we need help. And you, you mentioned uh, Hochul's reluctance to help. She's she's obviously thinking about these counties outside the city who uh, Democrats need in order to win the House. So she's, she's worried about um, upsetting those communities as well. Uh, but this is just a classic case of not uh, thinking through the consequences of your policies. If you if you put a big poster saying, come here, thinking you're never actually going to have to deal with it, and then one day you do, um, you need to put your money where your mouth is. And that's what's happened here. And it's it's unfortunate because, you know, I actually, I, I think the the politics of busing migrants is is very smart. I, I don't like it. I think it's it's inhumane and, and kind of gross, but I, it obviously works because all the Democrats can do in this situation is they can turn around and say, the Republicans are the villains, but people with common sense can see that the problem doesn't start with the people putting the migrants on the buses. The problem starts at the border. That's a Democrat's problem. That's uh, Biden's problem. That's Democrats in Congress responsible for this. Um, so it's easier for Eric Adams to, to point to Republicans, but the, the real culprit here are, are Democrats. So MBD, there was this incredible story. I, I, I can't believe this would happen, or I, I don't know what the mechanism would be legally to make it happen, but a story in the LA Times yesterday saying the Biden administration is considering forcing migrant families to stay in Texas. <laughs> 
<laughs> which would really be the you know the logical consequence of how they they think about this problem, which it should entirely be a border state problem, right? The migrants should never go anywhere else. It's not as though, by the way, that there are no illegal immigrants in New York City prior to this. There, there are a lot oh, yeah. of illegal immigrants in New York City prior to this, and they are celebrated. And, uh, uh, and, and various progressive politicians have wanted to, to uh, uh, get, give them more uh, preferment and, and um, more, more uh, things that, that usually you, you only get if you're a naturalized uh, a citizen. And, and it's, it's only now that it's uh, been found to be unacceptable. And a big element of it is providing shelter uh, to these folks, which is very expensive. It's not the only expense. You obviously have health care. You have the uh, strain on the education uh, uh, system. But the solution that Eric Adams and, and many others have, have been um, offering or advocating for is faster work permits. Yeah. But, you know, the, the end of the day, they, um, if, if you just... If you're letting people in and letting them immediately work, it's just more of a, a magnet, and they're going to get more of these migrants that they don't want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, listen, I think I have some sympathy for Eric Adams um, because you know the 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 lying really begins at the border and with the federal policies that are just granting. Uh, you know, what would otherwise be illegal economic migrants status as asylum seekers. Um, and then that has a spillover effects to what kind of legal status or work permits they're open to. And when in New York city, when they get sent up there or when they come up there. And I, I, I feel, I only, I, I agree with your critique of Adams. He's, he's wrong. The solution isn't just giving New York city more money to deal with this. And then speed up the ability of these um, people to work in the country legally. Um, but I, I at least appreciate that Adams, unlike um, in New York City, unlike Los Angeles, unlike San Francisco uh, and some other cities, is trying to keep the disorder that this creates off of the streets, right? Like they're, mm -hmm. tr they're trying, you know, by putting people up in hotels. I know it's hugely expensive for the city. It's ruinously expensive, but the the costs don't go away when you, if you don't do it. The costs just get dispersed as mm -hmm. disorder and more crime in your streets right. when you have tent cities like you have in Los Angeles, which are rife with abusive behavior, exploitive behavior. Um, they they make you know the the value of commercial real estate go towards zero. In those neighborhoods, um, you know that's awful. So I, I at least appreciate that Adams has at least some instinct that there has to be order, right? And New York City still has to function like um, like a normal city that's not in a war zone. Um, so I, I feel bad for him. the 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 idea that Democrats are going to start containing illegal immigrants to Texas is hilarious. Uh, for all the same reasons, and it, it points to my long-term theory that, like, in effect, Democratic administrations don't do border control. They just, they try to do Republican control, which is just like, we're just going to police and body these immigrants <laughs> in order to control Republican sentiment about immigration and try to contain the anger to districts that are already blood red or going that way. Um, in order to, to contain the political damage for us. Um, so anyway, it's it's a disaster. And again, the, the answer is you have to... And, and sometimes Adams almost comes close to pointing this out. That the answer is the numbers are unsustainable. And if the numbers are unsustainable, you have to lower the numbers at the border. And a decompression strategy at the border necessarily means vigorously enforcing our immigration laws such that people do not think they can get away with breaking them and they will stop coming when they, when they know that it's not going to result, come to a happy result, they will stop coming and they will stop putting this pressure on our services in our cities. Dominic. I think it is an illustration of, uh, first of all, that uh, being the mayor of New York city is one of the, just strangest political jobs because on paper, yeah. you're very powerful. You're the mayor of one of the most important cities in the world. You're overseeing 8 million people. 
Um, you have unified government if you're a Democrat, which you basically always will be. Um, and uh, yeah, he's completely, Eric Adams is completely at the mercy of uh, the federal government and of the state government of this. Uh, you know, it's it's not Eric Adams' fault that the Biden administration can't enforce border policy. Um, and it's... But, but, but Dominic, you're, you're leaving out an important part of the equation here. You can get a table at any restaurant you want on, on short notice as mayor of New York City, which is, which is why it's so crazy that Bill de Blasio had that ability and never took advantage of it, because all, all he wanted to do was to uh, slouch around in his, in his sweatpants. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Adams spends a lot of time in New Jersey anyway, right? Isn't that also... Um, but, uh, but no, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's such a strange, uh, position to be in because, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's not his fault that the, that the government, that the federal government can't enforce immigration laws and, you know, the governor of New York can kick you around basically whenever they want to. And so, um, you know, Adams is in, a, is in a, just, just a weird, weird spot here. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is, uh, you know, this is why we have immigration laws uh, to avoid situations like this and, um, to make sure that we are able to, uh, to process people effectively. I think it's funny, um, that, uh, what you described that the Biden administration is considering sounds like a remain in Texas policy. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's, uh, that, that would be. We got to fortify Texas borders with the rest of the United States. Yeah, that would be that would be rather interesting. Um, uh, well, just give just give Texas back. That, that's that's what we should do. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that, but. So so MBDX, a question to you. I, I've asked this at various times the last. Three years is is Biden's border policy sustainable? Yes or no? Um, <laughs> I, yeah. was, I was to show my cards. I was a no for for a long time. Then I realized that ah, no, nothing, nothing's going to make a difference. Yeah, it's it's sustainable. I mean, it's sustainable in that it's just, you know, there's a lot of ruin in the country. There's a lot of chaos that we can put up with. And so pol- politically sustainable. It's politi- It's politically sustainable, yeah, because there's not like a, you know, the only way to get out of this would be for Congress to do something, which would mean for Democrats to force something on him, and uh, that won't happen. Um, you know, if it, and if Republicans get control of both houses, I st- I still think the administration will find ways to avoid doing this because they they have like a fundamentally they have a bone deep convict moral conviction that enforcing our immigration laws is white supremacy and they <laughs> yeah. won't do it. So we can't, you can't even make them do it. Maddie. Um, I don't think it's sustainable. I think that we're already seeing Democrats uh, worry about the political costs of this and, um, and that will begin to show. Dominic. Yeah, it's probably sustainable. They don't seem to care all that much, uh, and uh, and yeah, I think Michael's right that there's a, a pretty basic uh, ideological commitment here to to not doing anything about the problem. Yeah, if it's not politically sustainable, these would be the conditions, right? Because you have it's not you know Greg Greg Abbott or Ted Cruz banging on about this. It's you know progressives and Democrats and. In good standing, but still, I'm going to say it's politically sustainable. It's it really you read these stories, and it, it's as though it still doesn't really occur to anyone that that what you should do is stop the flow at the at the border. It's you know how much aid should these cities get, and should they really have their shelter policies, and how can they be evenly and fairly the migrants distributed to to other places. And at the end of the day, I think MBD is right. There's just a, a deep ideological commitment to uh, having a de facto open border. Now, they're not letting everyone in. That's, that's true. But for a certain category of migrants who make bogus asylum claims, it's just illegitimate to exclude them. And what, what the Biden administration will say is we're making great progress on this issue because what we've done is, is take cleave off some of these migrants and let them in through new legal means, right? But the, the numbers are the same and, and the problem uh, remains the same. So it shouldn't be politically sustainable, but un- unfortunately 
It is. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. You're a way to read our content without getting stopped by the meter paywall, without engaging in any low and dastardly means to evade our metered paywall. If you sign up for NR Plus, you are just making a what I think is a, a, a good uh, public-spirited Mike Pence-like calculation that there's something you want to read, you value it because you want to read it, and you should pay a little bit for it. Not a lot. It's not going to bankrupt you by any means. I assure you there are many, many, many other subscriptions that you have that are much more costly than ours. But if you support what we do, if you appreciate it, if you value it, if you think it's important for an institution to be holding high, uh, the, the flame of conservatism and what makes this country great and fair weather and foul, you should really, really sign up and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. So, Maddie, don't want to exaggerate this because there are a lot of stupid meetings on Capitol Hill and elsewhere all the time where you have operatives and pollsters floating uh, not really uh, very, very uh, well-considered ideas, but w- we had one that's gotten some attention and is is notable because it does get to to uh, at what bottom is a real political problem. Although the diagnosis here is quite superficial, but there is a meeting where with Senate Republicans where they're told, you know what, the term pro-life just doesn't doesn't work in, uh, anymore. People hear it in a different way in the post-Dobbs environment and you really should stop calling yourself that and come up with something else like maybe pro baby what do you make of it i i don't see how pro-life is the problem i mean obviously it's a problem if you don't have a coherent policy prescription for to back up your so-called pro-life uh sentiments or or beliefs but pro-life was the alternative originally to anti-abortion um, I actually don't have a problem with anti-abortion. I think it's specific, and that is exactly the thing I'm anti. So, I, you know, but I get why politicians want something softer, more positive. Um, and I think if you compare pro-life to pro-choice, uh, pro-life is a much more positive-sounding term than than pro-choice. Um, it, not least because it encompasses, you know, choice. You have to you have to be alive to have choice. Um, so I, I don't I don't really get what the problem is the, the problem the, it seems like they're attacking the 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 symptom here and not not the cause the sim, the symptom being that they they simply don't know where they stand on the issue and they don't know how to communicate about it um, and uh, changing it to pro baby is not going to magically solve all of those problems. Yeah, MBD just the the label's not the the problem here apparently. There was a lot of conversation in this meeting that I think is is um, correct that you you need to be specific, right? If you, if you say, "Oh, I'm just pro-life," not I don't want to talk about it anymore, the the other side will characterize you as the most wild-eyed extremist on the issue of abortion. So even if you're uncomfortable with it, even if you'd rather talk about anything else, you need to be specific about what exceptions you'd have, about what what. Uh, uh, where where you want to draw the line in terms of of banning abortions and then and then defend it yeah um you know i was it was curious to see like the report had even josh hawley who's not you know never been shy about his convictions on this issue saying that he was you know stunned by the polling and that in the polling suggested to him that um, when voters hear pro-life, they think no exceptions ever, ever, ever. And when they hear pro-choice, they think of a variety of positions, not just the extreme one. Um, so I agree. Republicans have, I mean, if Republicans won't talk about it, then voters will suspect that they're either hiding the ball, they're hiding something that's too extreme for the, for the public, or that they don't even really believe in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, I agree. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure that there's trick. I don't, I'm not sure that there's some like label trickery to, to be done though. I think, uh, 
pro-life was a very successful branding exercise, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, it, it put other people on the defensive, um, and it can continue to do that. So, so, why, so why, why wouldn't pro-baby do that as well? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if it would or if it wouldn't. I mean, um, um, you know, I think pro baby might force people to talk about what it is when that we're talking about when we're talking about what's in the womb. But again, uh, I think people, (laughs) I, I don't think Americans, um, have any, difficulty grasping this debate i think what they have difficulty doing is accepting a settlement that they find both rational and tolerable uh right they, they find the the rational ideas are either pro-choice all the way or pro-life all the way but the public finds neither of those politically tolerable right that they, they somehow think uh it's ungenerous or mean both of those positions so I think Republicans, you know, really need to start talking about okay, well, what are we doing to support mothers? Um, uh, and some t- states have done that. I think that that more than anything would help. Dominic, uh, Maddie mentioned earlier the you know uh, anti-abortion versus pro-life, and yeah, I view this as all being part of the much longer story of uh, what we call these movements. Um, you know, the, the Associated Press always has this uh, this convention that they use where, you know, they don't use pro-life and pro-choice. They say, you know, uh, supporters of abortion rights and opponents of abortion rights and things like that. And and, and that, of course, is uh, rather question begging because uh, the existence of abortion rights is sort of the center of the issue. Um, but uh, I think... Um, I think we came to a good compromise here with pro-life and pro-choice. I think these are good terms. I think they accurately describe the position on each side. Um, Obviously, from the uh, pro-abortion perspective, a perspective I do not share, but from their perspective, they are the ones advocating for choice. Um, And from the anti-abortion perspective, which I do share, uh, we are the ones uh, we are the ones uh, advocating for for life. Uh, People like having choices. People like being alive. These are both uh, positive things. Uh, Obviously, one of them is a prerequisite to the other one. So I think (laughs) um, from from that perspective, I think pro-life is is, is a better a better term. But again, that's that's my bias uh, coming through. But I I think uh, uh, but but yeah, I think these terms are are good. They they accurately describe and and, and they are both uh, people know what you're talking about. When, when you say that, I think changing midstream is a bad idea. Um, and also, I think narrowing it to just pro-baby is a bad idea, too, because politicians have talked for many years on the right, and I think correctly so, that pro-life is not just about babies. It's obviously that's an important part of it, but it's also a, a, a more full um, um, vision that, you know, uh, of, of, of supporting uh, mothers like like um, like Michael mentioned, but also supporting um, you, know, you know families and uh, and 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 caring about uh, caring about issues that go beyond uh, infancy, right? And so I, I think that that's an important part of the movement and something that we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't ignore or get rid of. So Maddie, let's hit uh, an, an unrelated but another cultural issue. So the model Emily Radikowski. I, I follow her uh, work mostly through the New York Post. We should say, as is our want on this podcast, that she's almost as hot as Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, she strikes oh, me. No. It's uh, ne- neither here nor there, but obviously she photographs uh, incredibly well, but looks like the kind of um, model to me that in person she'd look a little weird, but just on, on the camera, you know, okay. It, 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 <laughs> it goes without explanation. But she said she, she uh, got married, I think, at age 26 and then uh, several years later 
got divorced, and there's uh, some other bold-faced name who, who did, did a similar thing, and she, she offered her, her support. She said, if being in your 20s is in the trenches, there's nothing better than being in your 30s, still being hot, maybe having a little bit of your own money, figuring out what you want to do with your life, and having tried that married fantasy and realizing that maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be, and then you've got your whole life ahead of you. She reassured everyone, quote, feeling stressed about being divorced and offered her sincere, quote, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm reminded of what the writer Peter Hitchens said in reference to capital punishment, which is he said, if you're going to have it, then it should be shocking and awful and violent. Um, there's a kind of creepiness to clinically managing capital punishment, you know, taking people away and giving them mm -hmm. lethal injection. And, you know, and his, his point was that killing a person isn't a natural thing to do. And we forget that at our peril. Now, obviously, it's a, a slightly different issue, but I, I do feel the same way about divorce. It's not a natural thing to do, to separate from your spouse, to live separately from your children, to begin new families when you, your original existing families still um, still have bonds and, and obligations to you and you to them. So if you're going to do it, if you, if you must get divorced, can we just make clear how awful that is? Uh, now, I'm not necessarily saying that people should be throwing plates at each other, um, but at least there's a kind of honesty in that, that this is a, a very sad thing. It's a it's a, a failure. You know, it might not be you personally uh, to blame for that failure, but it is a failure. Um, and I think it's indecent, really, to, to pretend otherwise. I mean, another celebrity, Ariana Grande, was, was saying she had a divorce and she said, you know, she, she and her husband, her ex-husband are still best friends. And I'm thinking, well, if you're still best friends, then what business do you have getting divorced? It's, it, you know, and, and obviously underlying this is a, is a philosophy of marriage that's all to do with individual satisfaction, using people so long as they you know make you happy and and are, are meeting your needs then then that's that's all there is to it and and when marriage breaks down it's sort of like uh, when a car breaks down you know it's just one of those unfortunate unfortunate things that happens nobody's really to blame it's it's foreseeable and therefore you, you should get a prenuptial agreement in the same way you should get like um, uh, car insurance and I just think that's incredibly cynical dehumanizing um, and just you know a, a very poor reflection on our marriage culture and unfortunately a lot of this stuff is celebrity led you know we had Adele with her um, song about her divorce and speaking in, in interviews about how like she voluntarily chose to dismantle her child's life and you know, how how liberating that was for her and then you also you've had uh, a couple of politicians recently so Justin Trudeau and his wife you know trying to present it in a PR stunt really but trying to present it as it oh this was you know really good for us and we it was very amicable and I think Bill de Blasio as well had had another one I don't I don't know if he actually got divorced but you know, we're still planning to live in the same house and see other people and it's like, what are you talking about? Like, what was your idea of marriage to begin with that this is a acceptable arrangement? Anyway, I just, I find it I find it very depressing, um, and you know, it it just it just goes to show once again how far we've gone in redefining marriage. Yeah. So MBD, if if you are a, a, a supermodel who's a, a a millionaire, you know, s several times over, maybe this is you know it is actually totally fine and you know also maybe there, there are people who get married very young and, and they're married very brief briefly and and uh, you know every every divorce is bad but it's, it's not as bad as you know ha having having several kids at, at stake and everyone immiserated by a, a divorce but in general divorce is is a bad thing it shouldn't be normalized and it, it has been normalized uh, over the course of decades in this country yeah I think I mean listen it has been normalized um you know, and, and people normalize it for understandable reasons, right? Because it happens, and people don't want to do the things that were part of denormalizing it, right? Like, I mean, I I was raised by a single mother, and I lived with basically none of the uh, baggage that would have attended to being a bastard in a previous century where you had uh, much more... Um, public norms against divorce and remarriage uh, or, or unmarried motherhood. Um, 
And, you know, I think, <laughs> like, part of this, we're talking about this because it's a celebrity, and I think the way the celebrities talk about it is, um, you know, uh, overwrought and self-dramatizing. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't know if they're really romanticizing divorce so much as, you know, accepting it and then finding a, a way yeah, a, a publicity yeah. a publicity mm -hmm. acceptable way of saying hey i still have my dignity mm -hmm. after this mm -hmm. which of course they do right of course they still have their human dignity they still have to live a, a decent life after this you know we don't cast them out or exile so, them so, so, but it's a little bit like uh right you know you, you do the nude scene in the movie and say say how empowering it was right <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, so like I, I, in a, in a way, like I'm trying not, I don't want to take what she says too seriously. Um, and again, it's different. Um, I think you're right, Rich, that it's different when the circumstances are different. I mean, in, in Emily's case and in this other celebrities case, Sophie Turner, there was a one young child involved in each of these marriages, uh, as, uh, there's actually two, uh, Sophie uh, Turner has two children. Oh, uh, Sophie Turner has two. Okay. I'm outing myself as someone who follows. <laughs> 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 but, um, and that, that changes things. I mean, like, um, someone who has a bust up of a marriage without children, it is very different. Um, as far as like how that plays out socially over the next years. I mean, when, when there's children involved, I mean, the the thing about um i think the thing people don't realize is that the marriage vows are true uh in the sense of like uh once you say them there is a relationship till death do you part um and that what divorce does is it sort of it doesn't get rid of the till death do you part part that remains it's just instead of basing it on love and cooperation right it's now based on enmity and antagonism as, as uh, some, some someone degree. said i forget i forget her name she she came up with the idea for the divorce uh vertical at the huffington post and her her line was marriage is temporary but divorce is forever right yeah that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly uh that, that no that's a that's a real truth um so yeah but listen i mean in some ways too i uh, I want to say that Maddie's right to talk about the culture because I I don't want to blame just the individuals. I mean, the the whole culture is kind of complicit in how we form people to these institutions and what we expect of them and what they expect of themselves in them. And so when you form people to fail at lifelong vows and they fail, I mean, yeah, they have some responsibility, but we all do. We yeah, so, so Dominic, let, let's go back to the political issue around abortion. Exit question to you first. A year from now or, or, or so, there'll be some notable number of Republicans who will be eschewing the term pro-life and attempting to come up with, with something else or, or, or avoid it in favor of something else, yes or no? Uh, I'm going to say no. Maddie Kearns. No, I think it's a really dumb idea. <laughs> that that doesn't mean that they they won't do it. <laughs> but I I take your point. MVD. Um, not that soon, but I do think, um, in the long term, I do think people who are pro life are going to. I, I think they're going to rally around a much larger cause about like rewilding human nature and like that that uh human nature, the fertility that we're given by nature is good. Um, so rewilding, and, and to be re rewilding human nature. Yeah. Well, that, that like <laughs> in the, in the sense that we're not born for the HR off the HR office's expectations of us, that mm -hmm. nature endows us in a certain way and that, um, and that's healthy. And these things that exist outside of the marketplace need to be protected. Mm -hmm and honored in law and culture. So I'm going to say no as well. With a little uncertainty. I, I think this, this might get a, a little bit of traction, but ultimately, I mean, the term pro-life is perfectly serviceable. It has stood us in good stead for, for decades. And it, it's, even if, even if you wanted to change it, it'll be really hard to change it. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD. You and your family have been spending a little time at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> no, just me. <laughs> um, no, it's just, uh, it's very funny. The 
Dunkin' Donuts that is near my house um, recently closed and then moved into a new building down the street. That's so weird. The exact same thing happened in my my little town. And, as well. um, and the the reopened spot is now so like luxurious, and it has same this like, long long line of bar taps where they same thing. get the, the coffee. So these upscale I, upscale this, baby. But this innovation of the the bar tap coffee bar is incredible and you know if you weren't a patriot i think you would just stay here for the hedonic pleasure of having that (laughs) (laughs) like this is uh it's just like i can't imagine living without this now um so basically the whole world can go to hell as long as the northeast of the united states exists uh we're doing okay it's a great it's a great american institution dunkin donuts i i would have I would put a McDonald's at the top of my list of such American institutions, and maybe it still does, but Dunkin' is is right up there. I, I just I love Boston creams. Sometimes, especially you know, if I'm going in the afternoon, it just feels like a little too much, so I'll just go with the standard glazed. But it's just a it's a great place. So Dominic, you were at an event for Jimmy Lai. Yes, uh, yesterday in Washington at the um, uh, Ronald Reagan Institute uh, event for. Jimmy Lai, the Hong Kong businessman who is uh, currently in prison in Hong Kong for um, basically for running a pro-democracy newspaper uh, that the Chinese communists don't like. And so um, he is truly a remarkable man. And uh, Jay Nordlinger was the moderator for the uh, the event in, in Washington. And um, we heard from uh, one of Jimmy's sons and uh, Hong Kong activist and uh, one of the uh, human rights lawyers working on uh, cases, uh, his case and cases similar to him. And so uh, it was it was very, uh, very interesting event and um, uh, free Jimmy Lai. Yeah, it's just uh, these characters, they're just so extraordinary for so many reasons. But one of them is just the sheer personal cussedness right if you if you think about the kind of things that all of us we, we bend to you know social pressures or, or or whatever just to kind of go along to get along where the stakes are much much lower and then you have people like Jimmy Lai or Nat and Sharansky great example from the Soviet Union just like no no forget it no and, and they'll, they'll take anything and uh, any any amount of uh, a punishment or threat and still will say no it's a it's a tremendous uh, testament to the the human spirit. So, Maddie, your your spirits uh, have been pretty good, at least when you've been outside there in Scotland, where it's actually been sunny. Yeah, well, I've been enjoying some rare Scottish sunshine um, and making the most of it as well. Going to uh, Loch Lomond went recently. The thing is, Scotland's so small that every, everything is actually quite close. <laughs> so. Um, went to Loch Lomond and then we went to a little town called um, Kouris, which is spelled C-U-L-R-O-S-S. So you'd think it'd be spelled, it pronounced Kulros, but it's actually Kouris, where um, I think various scenes in Outlander were filmed. So, yeah, it was fun. So I just read most of a book called A Short History of Europe by a journalist named Simon Jenkins came out back in 2019, and it is indeed a short history of Europe. You're not going to learn uh, much much new about any given period, but it's brisk and kind of helps you put all the pieces uh, together. So if you're into a short history of Europe, I recommend this book called A Short History of Europe by Simon Jenkins. With that... It's time for editor picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is a piece by Diane McLaughlin called George Washington's Economy, uh, where he kind of looks at this uh, book, George Washington, Dealmaker in Chief, uh, and just draws out the role that George Washington had in uh, sort of pioneering a, a strong American economy and uh, an entrepreneurial culture in the nation uh, and even in himself personally and through his foreign policy. And I think that's, uh, it's not usually how people look at the founders. They, they usually look, at, uh, at Madison and Hamilton for all of that. Um, but this is very profitable for me to read and probably for our readers too. Dominic, what's your pick? 
My pick is uh, Pence's conservatism speech, It's Hip to Be a Square, by Noah Rothman, um, pointing out the timeless truths that conservatism is not cool, uh, it's not supposed to be cool, and um, that, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, long, long-lasting traditions and things that we have, um, that have served us so well are never going to be fads, and uh, it's important to stand up to fads when they come along because political fads are almost always bad. Um, so it's just a good, uh, good piece reminding us of some uh, timeless truths there from from Noah. Maddie Kearns. My pick is Andy McCarthy's uh, question for the very special counsel, David Weiss. Um, Andy goes through all the evidence um, against Hunter Biden and asks the, the question, what has David Weiss been doing for the last five years? Um, but it's a very thorough and enjoyable column. So I wrote a column about the ridiculous electric car policy adopted by the Biden administration. California and New Jersey are even worse. And Andrew Stutterford has just had his teeth in, into this one for a very long time. And that's one of the, the great advantages of, of NR is our, our folks will develop these very healthy obsessions on a, on a given issue. So a lot of my research was just reading what Andrew has written about this recently. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine. Strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to ExpressVPN. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.